Hello and welcome to Goodness Love Alive. Today we're talking about the topic of perimenopause. We've enlisted the help of hormone expert Dr. Kerry Jones, who's a naturopathic doctor and medical director of Dutch Analytical, to tell us what it is and what we can do about it. Let's dive in. Dr. Kerry Jones, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. We are going to learn everything about perimenopause, andropause, and all these transitions in life that people have so much trouble with, but don't know what to do. So, thank you so much for making your time available to us today. Oh my gosh. Thank you both for having me. This is definitely <laughs> a favorite topic of mine since I'm um, in my early forties and I know this is coming. <laughs> this is Going from what we're seeing on Google, this thing is trending. There's so many questions. There's so many people upset. So many people think they're going crazy. Um, why do you think not? Why do you think people don't know more about this topic? Why do you think it sort of ambushes people at a certain time and they don't know how to handle it? They when women were never taught about it, really. I mean, when we think about back to your, um, you know, education about the male and the female body, maybe in the elementary school or high school or what have you, it was always about how to prevent becoming pregnant. And then as women got older, it was how to get pregnant. Now her, you know, and then it was like, Oh, you're done. You're not looking to get pregnant anymore. So good luck. And it, perimenopause was just complete in menopause was just completely glazed over. And a lot of our moms and grandmothers didn't want to talk about it. It's embarrassing. It's awkward. It re- it's oftentimes comes with a lot of symptoms. And so that the information that's passed down the generations was, oh gosh, don't you remember when grandma had the house super cold all the time and she was so moody or, you know, don't you remember when mom went through that transition period and it was just awful in the house. And so it becomes this really negative stigma in our society, unfortunately. Well, let's, let's zoom out for a second. For those who are just hearing the word perimenopause, they're going through this phase and just but don't have language for it. Can you tell us about what is perimenopause and what are the symptoms that people generally experience? You did mention grandma and people, I think people (laughs) intuitively kind of know what's happening, but what is the official verbiage around this topic? Yeah. So when, so the age range is generally considered like anywhere from 40 to 55, a woman can start to enter into perimenopause and perimenopause basically just means the stage before she goes through menopause. So they're the cycling years when she can get pregnant, her reproductive years, as we call them. And then there's this like gray area transition phase where the body says, well, I don't really want to get pregnant. We're kind of transitioning you into the stage where you lose your periods altogether, where you stop your periods altogether. And that's known as menopause. And and then so instead of doing a heart stop, like literally one day you can get pregnant, the next day you can't, we're going to phase you into it. But for a lot of women, the phase is kind of like a rough tumultuous roller coaster. So a lot of women will start to notice they can't sleep and their anxiety goes up. A lot of women will start to then say, my periods are getting weird. I get them every two weeks. Now I'm getting them every three months. And I used to be regular. There's the weight gain that comes around the middle. A lot of women, um, because of the change in hormones will start to put on that belly fat and they didn't change anything in their diet or their exercise. The hot flashes, night sweats, brain fog, joint pain, Um, maybe headache changes. We'll start to see more increased stuff like blood sugar, uh, diabetes risk, cardiovascular disease risk, 
This is where bone health can be really affected because the, where there's losing on hormones. Um, frozen shoulder. I have a lot of women that will say I hit 45 and developed frozen shoulder. What is this about? Vaginal dryness. I mean, like it's the more I read off the symptoms, so many women will say, yeah, yes, just check them all. I have all of them. And other women are like, well, I have a few or a few come and go. I had hot flashes last month, but not this month. I had, um, you know, my cycles were weird, but they're back to normal. Like, yep. All of that is very, very common. I'm not saying it's fun. I'm not saying, you know, it's like healthy per se, but it is really common for women. Mm. Wow. Yeah. I have so much to look forward to. <laughs> yes. Well, yeah. <laughs> you told us before the call that you've been warning your husband for years. Can you tell us about that? <laughs> So because I'm a hormone educator and uh, work for a hormone lab, my husband is very much in the know about all things hormones because I talk very openly. I talk, you know, very anatomically about things to him. And uh, just a couple of weeks ago, we were in the kitchen and I was reminding him that, you know, perimenopause and the common symptoms. And, and he was just horrified. He goes, women go, all women go through this. All your best friends are going to go through this. You know, I'm like, don't you remember your mom talking about this, about, you know, that time in her life and my husband comes from four boys. So they're four mm -hmm. oblivious boys. And they were like, yeah, we kind of remember mom going crazy. You know? <laughs> and, but he was just, he was just mortified. He goes, haven't you found a cure for this? Don't, don't they have something they can give you, you know, to fix this? Hasn't evolution caught up? I'm like, oh, you know, sorry, babe. <laughs> I mean, we're working uh, on it and there's a lot of proactive things we can do. And I know there are a lot of educators out there that don't want women to think negatively about perimenopause, they honestly want them to think of it as a transition state. And I completely agree with that. But I also don't want to mm, like undermine or blow off the women who are really at a 10 out of 10 struggling. The women who are really, you know, you were talking about all those key, keyword searches you did earlier. And there are women who keyword search all of those things. Like, when will it end? Why is it so bad? You know, what is the symptom? Will it go away? I can't handle this. I mean, those are the real patients that I see and I want them to know like you're not alone and it's it's not fun or fair, but it is perimenopause. Do you think, again, before we dive in, into some of those specific issues, do you think there is something environmental happening in terms of um, the severity yeah. and maybe even the onset of perimenopause? Absolutely. I think between diet, lifestyle, stress and, and environment, it makes it exponentially worse. And so... Um, Women in their 40s and early 50s are often at the height of their career. So stress is usually huge if they're if they're career women um, or and or if they're with family, kids are often graduating. Kids are often you know going off to university kids or maybe going into high school. Um, their parents are aging. And so now they're in their 40s or 50s having to deal with aging parents who are in their 70s or 80s or maybe even 90s. And that's very stressful. It's often a big time of relationship transition. So divorce and marriage counseling and separation. Um, health scares are scarier. You know, a health scare in your 20s may be something not nearly like a health scare when you turn 50, right? Like it's, that's generally, it's, you're less resilient. You're less likely to bounce back. You're older. And so I think coupled with poor diets, lack of movement, all the environmental toxicants that mimic estrogen or just sort of ruin 
to be dramatic, like our detox system, you know, that our body has to deal with every single day. Um, it's a lot. And, and, oh, by the way, as a woman, you're going through perimenopause, which I commonly describe as reverse puberty. So if you remember male or female going into puberty, women now have to back out of it. And we don't have the bodies we had when we were 13, 14, 15, you know, we, we have, we have years of exposure, years of stress, years of, um, damage that we are, are working with. And so, yeah, absolutely. I agree with you, Matt. I think, um, all the external takes a big toll on us. Well, I guess it's so cool to know that, um, if you're going through this, that there is an endpoint and that you don't have to suffer alone, that you can get help. Um, mm-hmm. what was, what are some of the most effective things just starting, I guess, starting with the, uh, the brain aspect, someone's got mm-hmm. extremely anxious. They feel like they're going crazy. They're losing their mind, you know, like two years before they're high functioning, you know, executive woman. And then all of a sudden they feel like they're losing the plot. Where do you start with someone like that? So there's a really great book by a really great author. Um, her name is, she's, uh, Dr. Lisa Moscani. She's a PhD neuroscience researcher of women's brains. That's what she researches. And she wrote a book called the XX brain. And she explains that when women, um, when we, when we, uh, use glucose, right, blood sugar for energy in our brain as women get into perimenopause and menopause, we lose the ability to use our glucose that well. And so we essentially lose out on that, um, that function. And that glucose is necessary for things like to make glutamate, in our brain, glutamate is a neurotransmitter that helps a lot with learning and memory. Too much glutamate is a problem, but kind of like Goldilocks, if it's just right, then our brain is, you know, a game and sharp and ready to go. That also helps make GABA. GABA is our uh, relaxing, calming, everything's going to be okay neurotransmitter. So women often get the brain fog. They can't remember. They have to create lists. They feel, um, you know, that they can't remember names and then, and then on top of it, they're anxious and they can't sleep because they can't make enough glutamate for the memory and the learning and the executive stuff. And they can't make enough GABA for the calming, relaxing stuff because they're the way they utilize glucose is shifting on top of that women going into menopause and perimenopause, we stop ovulating, releasing an egg as normally or as uh, routinely as we used to, because we're not looking to get pregnant anymore. Um, well, the body thinks we shouldn't get pregnant anymore. So we lose out on the hormone called progesterone and progesterone helps trigger the brain to make GABA to help us be calm, collected, cool, you know, patient. And a lot of women listening in their forties are probably like, yeah, I've lost my patience a long time ago. (laughs) Like that's gone. (laughs) And so we, it's this, it's this domino effect that happens between glucose, the neurotransmitters in the brain, ovulation, progesterone. Um, and then on top of that, estrogen, our main female hormone plays a huge role in the brain, has a huge role in dopamine, which we were talking earlier for motivation, right? And our reward system has a lot to do with serotonin, which is our, for mood, it's commonly called an antidepressant hormone, acetylcholine, which is a horm- a neurotransmitter that, um, um, well, I describe, I call it like bike messengers. It helps you get things from point A to point B. And it's really great for learning memory, having your brain switched on. That's what I like acetylcholine for. And so we, as women tend to lose, we, if we, at first at roller coasters, it's sort of up and down comes and goes. And then eventually, um, we sort of settle into, you know, menopause and our, we 
some women get more used to it and things balance out and other women feel like they've sort of never recovered if they don't do anything. Okay. Thank you. Before we dive into more like of the treatment stuff, I would like to just skip back for a second. And um, I'd love to ask you like, what is anatomically happening when someone goes into Mm. perimenopause? You said it's like reverse puberty. Uh, What's (laughs) happening? (laughs) What's happening on an anatomical cellular level? Yeah. So uh, women, um, we are born, as far as we know, we are born with all of our what are called follicles on our ovaries. And so inside every single follicle is an egg. We are born with millions of them. And every month when you ovulate and release the egg, whether you want to get pregnant or not, we do it. The female body generally is supposed to do it every month just in case you want to get pregnant. So over time, as we get older, we lose all of our follicles. Some of them, they die naturally. They get killed off by our immune system naturally, or we ovulate one every month. So by the time we hit our 40s and our early 50s, we have lost a huge percentage of these follicles. This is important to know because on the follicle are our cells that make hormones. So basically a little hormone factories live and reside and are built on the follicles. So that's what makes our estrogen, some of our testosterone, some of our DHEA and our progesterone. And as we lose significant amounts of this, then as women, we lose out on that estrogen, testosterone, progesterone, these hormones that help us feel healthy, feel sane, you know, help all the memory in our skin, our heart and our health, our bones and mood and all this stuff. And so eventually we, the ovaries are done. They basically shut down. They're out of follicles. They don't release eggs anymore. They don't want to get pregnant. Therefore that hormone production shuts down and it has to move other places. But when it moves other places, it's in very, it's very small amount. It's not a, it's the ovaries make the majority of hormones like estrogen and progesterone and other places don't. So they make enough to eke it, eke it out and, and help women, but not enough to restore us to like our, you know, prime 21 year old self anymore. So it's these loss of cells, um, that kind of, that screw us over (laughs) and cause the symptoms. Mm. So when it comes to female hormones, we have estrogen and progesterone being the the main ones. Um, I feel like estrogen has a bad reputation and progesterone, most people don't even know, haven't even heard that word. Could you talk to us about those specific hormones, how they work, and maybe that estrogen isn't the worst thing ever? (laughs) It's it's the same uh, Goldilocks analogy. So it does get vilified for sure. Estrogen does. Um, But too little of it is a problem as well. We need we need just right as women because we go up and down in our cycle. Then we tend to make our estrogen off and on at different points in a month. We don't make heaping amounts all month long. It's very it's very orchestrated. But estrogen is what makes things grow. So it's really important for our bone. It's really important for our vessels, so our heart health. It's really important for our brain and our mood. It's really important for our skin and our collagen. It's, you know, why young women don't have wrinkles and, you know, not very much cellulite. And, you know, they, they, they're, they're kind of like full and, and lush. Their hair is, you know, the hair of a 20 year old compared to a hair of a seven year old is very different. Estrogen plays a, a big role in that. Um, but estrogen, um, if it becomes too much, then we know we get things like PMS. So mood swings, breast tenderness heavy periods, potentially, right? Breast cancer, uterine cancer, things like that. So estrogen and estrogen is what makes a woman a woman. It's definitely the hardest working hormone in the female body. 
Its counter, but equally as important, is something called progesterone, also made in the ovaries. And it just, it comes out at a little bit different time of the cycle compared to estrogen, the majority of estrogen does. And progesterone is short, it's, um, it means pro-gestation. So it's pro-getting pregnant. It's pro-helping your the inside of your uterus be ready for implantation. It's, it's pro helping you have nice, easy, lighter periods. It's, it's helps you not have clots. It helps you, uh, reduce things like maybe, maybe fibroid or polyp development for those women who have history of fibroids or polyps. And, and it's also helpful for sleep. It's helpful for calming. So it's good at anti-anxiety. So we like progesterone. We need estrogen to like make things grow. So we don't get osteoporosis. So we don't get cardiovascular disease and our skin looks good and, you know, our mood is good. And then we need progesterone on the other side of it to help our periods be nice and help reduce PMS risk and help us get to sleep and help us not be as anxious. And so two equally important hormones, they just come at the female body a little bit differently. Perfectly. Perfect. Um, I, I, there's a term that's quite common, well, growing in, uh, popularity at the moment. It's uh, estrogen dominance. Mm-hmm. Uh, could you tell us a little bit about that, what that is and um, and why it might be important for someone listening? So estrogen dominance, um, usually when they refer to the word estrogen dominance, they mean it in comparison to progesterone in the second half of a woman's cycle. So if if the first day you get your period is considered day one, the middle part of your cycle is generally when you ovulate. So let's let's pretend you have, you're 28 days. You bleed every 28 days. So day one is the first day of your period. Ovulation's in the middle, generally around day 14-ish. And then you, then you go from day 14 to day 28. So that day 14 to 28 is known as a section of your cycle called the luteal or luteal phase. And that is where we make progesterone. When you, when you ovulate, when you release the egg, whether you want to get pregnant or not, it doesn't matter. The cells automatically make progesterone. If they don't, or they don't do it very well, let's pretend they're kind of weak or less strong, then estrogen dominates over progesterone. Estrogen on lab work looks higher than progesterone does. And so what happens is we're out of balance, and then we are more prone to water retention, PMS, heavier periods, fibroids, clots, polyps, things like that. So we get called estrogen dominant because in that second half of our cycle, as we get closer to our period, estrogen's winning, so to speak, if you were to, if you were to compare the two and progesterone is not um, as robust and strong as it should be. So that's why it's called estrogen dominance. You're the uh, medical director of Dutch Analytical. In results that you see from people, is this a common thing to have estrogen and progesterone out of balance? Very all the time. We see it all the time. Um, and we see it from two different reasons. Uh, we see it because the, for whatever reason, the body is not ovulating. It's not releasing the egg like it should. So a lot of, a lot of things get in the way of releasing an egg right now with a global pandemic, stress is a big reason, right? Fear, um, threat is a big reason. So for a lot of women right now, they'll message me and go, oh my gosh, my period in May and June was crazy. Like <laughs> I didn't get it. I skipped a month. It came a little early. I didn't ovulate. I know I didn't ovulate. Um, and like, I'm probably nothing wrong internally. It's probably the brain is scanning for threats, sees you feeling threatened and anxious and nervous and scared. And it's decided now is not the right month to have a baby. Whether you want to get pregnant or not, it doesn't matter. 
it's, it's what the woman, it's what women do. So that is a big reason. Thyroid issues are another big reason, um, that women maybe don't ovulate. There's a lot of reasons, but on the flip side for estrogen, um, a big one is a, um, like liver or digestive issues. So if your liver is maybe slow to, uh, to clear your estrogen through detoxification, um, and maybe you have constipation, you, um, you know, don't have a bowel movement every day. Maybe you have gas and bloating and upset stomach quite often. That will actually circle back and can increase your estrogen levels in your body, believe it or not. And so you can, you can, and you can have both. You can say, well, I don't, I have thyroid issues. I don't think I ovulate and I have all sorts of, you know, GI issues as well. And so we have to sort of address this to help get the estrogen and progesterone back into balance. But yes, we see it all the time on Dutch testing. It's very prevalent in our society, um, especially right now with everything going on. Could you explain more about what is happening in the GI tract as uh, these hormone imbalances come into play? Yeah. So what happens is when the body is done with anything, so whether it's processing a hormone or a chemical or a medication, it goes through a three-step process. The first two steps are in the liver. And the third step, which is the final step, is happens in the intestines, in the colon. And so basically your hormone is packaged, ready to be excreted, ready to like leave the body into the toilet. But if you have a lot of um, maybe infection, inflammation in your GI tract, maybe um, you, have, you have constipation, you don't have regular um, bowel movements, then, the, then it just sits there. And then what happens is there's, there's an enzyme that will open the package and allow the hormone to fly free again and it gets reabsorbed. And so now an estrogen, as an example, goes through phase one and it clears phase two and now it's sitting there in your, in your intestines, but because of your intestinal upset, your GI upset, you get, you end up reabsorbing it back into the system and the body has to deal with it the exact same as it did the first time. It it's, it's been tagged to leave, but yet it accidentally gets reabsorbed back to the system. So you can have a lot of hormonal imbalance all because of the GI tract. Thank you for sharing. So for our women going through this perimenopausal period, of time, um, both of their hormones are diminishing. Um, is it still possible to be estrogen dominant? Yes. Cause usually what happens is that they're, they will, um, ovulate not that regularly initially, meaning, um, she used to have normal regular cycles every month. And then the body's like, I, you know, I'm we're not looking to get pregnant anymore. We're 48 and we're 52 and we, I don't want to do this anymore. And so, she starts to stop ovulating. Therefore, she stops making progesterone, but continues to make estrogen. And women, much like men, but women can make estrogen out of their fat tissue. And so as a result, we become estrogen dominant because we don't make, we don't ovulate anymore. We don't, the body feels like we don't need to. So yes, women in perimenopause can become estrogen dominant. So you've told us, I guess, at the start of the call, the worst case scenario, or just like all the symptoms that you could get from, <laughs> yes. from this wonderful yes. picture of what could happen when you're, when you're hitting perimenopause. But what is the, what is the ideal? I know that we, you mentioned before we started recording that we can't avoid it, but mm-hmm. w- what can we do? What could be expected? 
Uh, well, there's the best case scenario is that it's very mild. She hardly has any symptoms. Um, it doesn't last very long, uh, meaning some some women go through perimenopause, you know, for maybe 10 years. And I believe I think research says the average is seven. Seven years is the average for perimenopause to go from regular periods to the irregular phase to no periods. The average is about seven years. It's a very long, drawn out process that when I am in charge of the universe, I'm going to change that to be much, <laughs> much quicker. You. Right. And it's going to be way better. Um, but there, I have women not often, but I do have women that say, oh, yeah, I sailed right through that. Like that I really wasn't a big deal for me. I maybe had some insomnia or I had hot flashes sometimes, but it was it was totally cool. Like I didn't really notice anything. I tend to find that in families. Usually it's I will hear like I'm like, oh, did your mom was her mom's your mom's menopause bad? And they're like, oh, no, no, actually, like the whole family, we kind of sail through it. They're kind of unicorns, those women. Um, most women don't uh, look out like that. But that's ideal. Ideally is that uh, the body is in a state that it can, you know, the other hormones can maybe, for lack of a better analogy, step up and help with balance and help with symptoms and help with everything that's going on. And so that it's more of a mild kitty roller coaster as opposed to a level 10 Lots of loop de loops and circles, and yeah. you know, you throw up the end. <laughs> we don't want that one. <laughs> no. So, uh, what can we do as women, even um, someone my age, looking, preparing, I guess, for this period in time? Um, yes. What can we do to push our bodies closer towards that that ideal? <laughs> so, I always tell my. You're like the perfect age. So, I tell my female patients. You have to prepare in your 30s. Ideally, you'll prepare much younger than that. But let's be honest, like we're stupid in our teenage years and early 20s. And then we're just figuring out in our 20s, late 20s. And by the time we hit our 30s, we're like, okay, I need to take my health more seriously. So coming into perimenopause, honestly, you have to be kind of at your A game of health. And you need to be um, stress and sleep are kind of your two biggest things I find when it comes to perimenopause. Because you women are extremely affected by stress. Our cycles are affected by stress. Our hormones are affected by stress. Um, and, and, the, and the lack of hormone greatly affects our sleep, which, of course, affects absolutely everything. So women in their 30s, I'm like, I need you to take this stuff seriously. I need your diet to be dialed in. I need you to be, you know, exercising regularly. I need you to be actively working on your stress response. I know you can't get rid of stress. Absolutely. But how you handle stress, how you handle yourself in the face of stress, what you're doing to take care of yourself with stress. Um, that's, that's what I need women to be really focused on when they hit their thirties, because when they transition in their forties or early fifties, um, then it's just a matter of kind of, uh, like really dialing it in more, buttoning it in, buttoning it up more as opposed to the women who come into their forties, slam into their forties. And they're like, I used to be able to eat anything I wanted and I didn't exercise and I'm, my stress is a 10 out of 10 and it never affected me. And now it's affecting me. So now I'm trying to help her and she's going through perimenopause. So I'm trying to educate about all the things I wish I would have educated her on her thirties in like one visit, I'm like, okay, let me explain perimenopause to you. And you have to completely upheaval your whole life and make some changes because the body will push back. Here's the thing. I have 
I have a lot of women that are like, I'm not doing that. And then they come back and they say, okay, it got worse. (laughs) My body got mad. Um, I couldn't handle it. Like I thought I could, I'm gaining more weight or or whatever it is. And so, um, I want women in their thirties to really just routinely be thinking about taking the best care of yourself that you can and, and learning the, um, learning the habits and the skills to do that now versus trying to learn it for the first time in your forties. Cool. Let's talk about sleep first. Um, are you wearing <laughs> blue blockers right now? Are these, I'm wearing are these the computer. Spectacles? Yeah. So these are computer blue blockers. So they're the mm-hmm. clear frame, clearish frame as opposed to the orange frame. Mm-hmm. Yep. So I wear so these in the day and the orange at night. After we interviewed you last, I actually went out and bought some. I I now have two pairs. I have ones that are clear like that and Mm -hmm. I have the more amber ones for later in the evening. Am Mm -hmm. I on the right track? And um, can you tell me the science behind why I'm doing that? Yes. And in fact, you both should be doing that. So Matt. Yeah, Matt. I I have been telling him, but maybe you need to be a bit more strict with him. I know. So uh, humans, male or female, doesn't matter. Humans work on a circadian rhythm. And we have these genes called the appropriately called the clock genes. They manage our clock. And so basically what the clock genes say is humans should get up in the light and they should go to bed in the dark. And those clock genes affect every other rhythm in our whole body, how our ovaries work, men, how your, how your testicles work, how your liver works, how your pancreas works, how you handle blood sugar, how you fight an infection, how your cells turn over, how your immune system turns on or off. It doesn't matter. Your clock is involved in a lot of these things. So with sleep, we know that the cells that register bright light in the morning to tell us like, oh, it's morning time. I need to get up now because bright light has hit my eyes can relay the same message at night when you go to bed. So if you're up on your computer, which is a bright light, if you're watching a big screen TV, that's bright light. If you have all the lights on in your house, if you're on your phone with the TV on, <laughs> with your computer running, it just triggers that part of your, the cells in your eyes to go, don't make melatonin, you know, like keep the cortisol high. They're, they're still up. They're still working. There's, it's still daylight. So it can, it can, for some people, really cause problems with sleep. They can't fall asleep very well. They don't hit all the stages of their sleep, their deep sleep, their REM sleep. Um, and, and they um, often, you know, fatigue, right, is a big thing. So they don't, and our sleep, we, um, and our sleep, our sleep is where we do everything. It's where we restore and it's where we lay down memories and it's where we um, uh, detoxify. It's when our brain detoxifies is during the sleep. We have a system in our brain that handles that. And so if you're not getting quality sleep, then you're missing out on all those really nutritive reparative functions the next day. So by using, um, the, so the, I use the clear glasses cause I'm on computer. So I'm trying to avoid damaging my eyes and, uh, or straining my eyes. Right. And then at night I use the amber glasses to cut the bright light that's coming out of my computer or my TV or my, or my phone so that I can help hopefully more mimic um, the, the, the light in the day without causing strain and then more darkness at night. And people go, why amber? Why, like, why, why do I need amber? Can it be purple? Can it be green? <laughs> like, why amber? And it's because that when you look at, um, when you look at a spectrum of light, full spectrum light, 
in the morning and in, in up till noon in a full sunny day, it's more the blues, think blue sky, right? Blues and greens and yellows. And then as we get into the evening time, when the sun sets, it's, it's oranges, it's pinks, it's ambers, it's reds. And historically, that triggers the body to go, oh, nighttime is coming. Nighttime is coming. Dusk is here. So let's start to make melatonin. Let's start to wind you down and hopefully make you sleepier. And then when you do close your eyes, you can, you can fall asleep. It's also the time of fire, right? Like fire is amber and we usually light a fire at night, um, not in the morning and have for thousands of years. So, um, it's, it's so in some of the research I read, it's, you know, it's like, well, you know, fires red and amber and it triggers to the brain, make melatonin, it's time to wind down. So that's why we, that's why we pick those glasses. Thank you. Ideally, we, we wear no screens, right? Ideally, we would do no screens, but let's like let's be honest. <laughs> I thought Sarah was just going through some hipster, you know, like yellow glasses, <laughs> really glasses phase. Um, no, I need yeah. to get some for sure. Um, I'm I'm curious as well, just while we're on that topic, I've seen some studies which just throws out some really interesting ideas around this how important sleep is, particularly mm-hmm. as it relates to disease. Um, mm-hmm. I think like some studies indicating that you know when adjusting for everything. If you have, if you're doing shift work or you're not sleeping correctly or you're like, these rhythms are out, your mm-hmm. likelihood of disease, cancer skyrockets. Is that true? Yep. A hundred percent. So I've been doing, so the um, research into these, the clock genes and um, circadian rhythm is a big passion of mine because I work for a company that tests the circadian rhythm. And, uh, you know, the, the Nobel Peace Prize was won by the circadian rhythm, you know, uh, researchers couple years ago. And so it's that important. It is absolutely that important. Um, like I said, it's when all the, it's when all that, the action, the magic happens in the brain. And, um, it's when we release growth hormone and which is kind of like our scrubbing bubbles that goes through and cleans and, you know, it's very anabolic and helps improve the human body. Um, and then I said, we have like the brain has a cleaning system. It starts with a G it's called the glymphatic system. So we have a lymphatic Think like your tonsils and your lymph nodes um, in the brain. We have the glymphatic with the G. And so at night in our deep sleep, our little, little brain cells shrink a little bit to provide all the space. And then our little glymphatic system, our, our cells go through and, and clean out, and, you know, remove debris and, you know, bring protein and nutrients and vitamins. It's very efficient. You know, it's kind of like the nighttime cleaning crews that go into big sky rises at night and not in the day. And then you walk in in the morning, your sky rises, you know, your building is completely clean. It's the same. So if, if you never, if you don't have very good deep sleep, then you're going to struggle. Um, and, but yeah, it, the sleep has a lot to do with how we develop diabetes, insulin resistance, how men make testosterone, men make it in, the, in, in their sleep. There was a, it's a small study, but, um, men who, uh, they did a study with, I believe it was only 15 men and they cut them to sleep, um, to five hours a night, which is not uncommon. I mean, think of other men, entrepreneurs, men, new, new dads, men who are up playing video games, you know, um, five hours of sleep is normal for a lot of guys and their testosterone production went down by a significant percentage. And so it's, you know, really important for hormonal health. Thank you. So, and that's just so important. I think right now during the pandemic that, uh, sleep disturbance is actually skyrocketing. So I think Mm -hmm. it's so much more important that we draw attention to these things so we can obviously get on top of our sleep hygiene. I mean, even from the flip side, if you just think it from a disease prevention, but also mm-hmm. performance enhancing, 
Like yeah. the studies are amazing. Like, uh, like I've, I've seen some studies where they've examined basketball teams. And even when you start losing one, two hours a night of sleep outside of that recommended aid, yeah, you know, like their their uh, three point percentages, everything just dropped. It's mm-hmm. like quite incredible. Like quite incredible. So, yeah. yeah, sleep hygiene is so important. What's your and- quick like a quick few tips for someone that's struggling right now with all the stress going on, um, the pandemic? We know people are googling this all over the place because they're not sleeping correctly. What are some quick right. tips? So when you're Googling this, don't Google it at night. <laughs> Ideally, you'll be off your screens. <laughs> um, so really, there's so much research around screen time and bright light. And so I am 100% guilty uh, as charged. But the less you can be on your screens at night or around bright light um, is, is ideal. And the, the glasses are wonderful, but they're not um, they're not magic. You know, like they're not they're not a get out of jail free card. So they help significantly. Absolutely. Which is why I do them. Um, but getting off screens is one big thing. Having a wind down routine. I believe, uh, it was the, uh, author Michael or, um, Matthew Walker who wrote the book, why we sleep. I believe he said, we have a wind down routine for kids, our children. Why don't like, why do we stop that as adults? Like we need to read a book before bed. We need a warm beverage before bed. We need, you know, give us a bath before bed you know, let us wind down before bed. And that can be really, really helpful at improving you know, our, our sleep. Cool, cool bedroom, right? Cool sheets, cool air uh, temperature can be really helpful as well. If you, a lot of people struggle to sleep when it's hot, big reason for perimenopausal women, they have temperature control issues internally, and therefore they feel hot often and they get hot in the sleep. And so I have a lot of perimenopausal women that say, I now sleep with the window open. I now sleep with the fan on because I need that extra coolness, that moving air across me to register to my brain that it's cool. And then I can, I can sleep a whole lot better. And then there are a number of just very calming, um, very safe sort of, you know, herbs like chamomile. A lot of people do chamomile tea at night before bed. Another popular one is holy basil, which is also known as Tulsi and very common at stores, generally considered very safe. And so I will tell people like, you know, use that as part of your wind down routine. It touch, you know, when you make tea and drink tea at night, it tells the brain It's like that Pavlov's dog, right? Tells the brain like, Oh, we're about to go to bed. Okay. We're about to go to bed now. And then it can be very, very calming. So it's obviously there's bigger guns. I have bigger gun supplements. I have bigger gun herbs to help, you know, try to help knock somebody out bigger gun hormones, uh, especially for women. But sometimes it's just the basics. Sometimes people go, oh, you're right. I'm on my computer in my bed with my TV on eating ice cream with the dog. Like, okay, I know (laughs) I need to I need to address the basics. Um, And then the last thing I would say is to address your sleep um, habits. So if you have if you snore, if you uh, mouth breathe, if you have sleep apnea, that will a million percent over affect the way you sleep and therefore the way you are the next day. Because if you have, if you snore, if you mouth breathe, if you have sleep apnea, that means you are getting less oxygen to the brain. And if you aren't convinced oxygen is important to the brain, hold your breath and let's see how long it goes. Mm-hmm. It's super important, right? So it's amazing to me the number of people that go, Oh, I know I snore. My partner tells me I snore, but I don't want to do anything about it, but I'm tired all the time. And I get hot flashes and night sweats at night and my brain fog is terrible. I'm like, well, oxygen's kind of key. Like we have to get that figured out. Excellent. Um, so another thing we've found people looking for when they're 
trying to understand this topic is actually husbands trying to get a handle on what the heck is happening. What are some quick tips for <laughs> the husband or the, the male side of things or the partner in the relationship trying to understand the person? Because how, t- you know, how terrible is it that, you know, relationships are destroyed because people just think they've changed, but really right. they're just going through a, a, like a transition. Yeah. Um, yeah. What are some tips for husbands? I honestly encourage them to go to the doctor's appointment and learn about what's going on here. You know, if she's getting testing, hear about the testing, the testing results and do some research, you know, Google or look up what is perimenopause? What is this transition? What's happening with her hormones? Um, and where she knows, like in my case, you know, a lot of women uh, do know what's going on or they know what's expected, but because they know they forget, they just we, we kind of assume like, well, we know everyone knows. Right. And it, it's not always the case. And so do like what I did and routinely warn my husband of, Hey, this might be coming. And then communication is key. You know, like you're going through a transition. A lot of things are changing. It's kind of reverse puberty. So he can't read your mind and he has no idea what you're going through. He can't relate at all. When you go through puberty, men and women go through puberty in their teenage years differently but everybody goes through puberty. So it's often rough for everybody as far as like moodiness or acne or, you know, what awkwardness, whatever. But men can't relate to this. Men don't have this clear sort of phase that they're, you know, headed towards like menopause. Men can continue to reproduce um, unlike women. And so he has no idea what's going on. And so to get him a little educated, like, Hey, look, it might be rough for a couple of years and I'm going to need your help and support and love. I need you to point it out to me. You know, we may need some, a third party. We may need some uh, therapy or counseling to help navigate this. You know, just that's what I found to be the most helpful. Mm-hmm. It's generally, generally not because men don't want to, or they're rude or they're being a jerk. They literally just don't know. If you think women don't know, men do not know. Unless he happened to grow up in a house just full of women and they talked about this stuff all the time. Most men have no, I mean, did you know? (laughs) How much did you know about perimenopause? I knew about menopause, obviously, but this- Yes, the perimenopause. The perimenopause. It's not a word in your vocab. And it's still like, I feel like I've got like- mine, to be honest. Perimenopause for dummies. And I've like produced a docuseries on the hormones. (laughs) I feel like- there's a lot to learn, guys. So yeah. definitely dig in. So if he can just learn the basics of okay, it's it's going to be challenging and tough, and then they need to face it, you know, together as a couple. And I don't I don't mean face it like it's something you know horrible and awful, but don't take it out out on each other. Like learn to recognize and communicate, and um, and and she there is a there are a lot of help options out there, and don't feel like she has to suffer through seven years of hormone chaos all by herself, you know, like be proactive and seek help. Thank you. You might have saved us a bit of strife in, in 10 years time. <laughs> 10, 10, 15 years, yeah. <laughs> um, so when you mentioned before that you, there are a couple of herbs for sleep and all that sort of stuff. So mm-hmm. when it comes to perimenopause in general, do you think there's a place for herbs or supplements to mitigate any of these symptoms? Yes. Absolutely. I use a lot of adrenal. So a lot of our stress hormone um, support, because as women lose their hormones, we rely more and more and more on our stress system. And our stress is often usually very high at this point of our life. And so I tend to use like B vitamins and vitamin C and um, ashwagandha and ginseng. And um, again, that holy basil, which I mentioned, maca, which is a Peruvian herb. And so these can all be very nourishing, very helpful, very balancing. 
to just uh, maybe stabilizing to some of the stuff that's going on for her. There are other really great um, herbs such as we call them phytoestrogens, meaning that they're like soy is common, a common phytoestrogen, um, but so is like licorice. Licorice is a, believe it or not, is a phytoestrogen. Um, there's a, there's one called Don Quai, Angelica, or otherwise known as Angelica. And so they, to summarize what they do kind of really basically, they bind to the estrogen receptor and they act very, 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 very weakly. So if an estrogen is a hundred, let's say when, so when it binds, it's a hundred percent on, whereas a phytoestrogen may be 5%. And so if you're a woman who's used to having a lot of estrogen floating around, you're dominant, the phytoestrogen can help binds to the receptor and takes the place Take, holds the place for it so your actual estrogen can't bind and then your body will get rid of it. On the flip side, if you don't have very much estrogen, you're very, very low, you're at zero, getting 5% can be really helpful. That might really be enough to help your hot flashes, your night sweats, um, symptomatic wise. And so you'll see, unfortunately though, I will say the caveat, um, obviously always talk to your practitioner, but there's a lot of junk on the market, uh, as you guys know. And so just going to the first store you find and picking up a supplement labeled menopause support. Like you really have no idea what's inside. Like you, you don't know if what they say is inside is actually inside. There's not a lot of regulation around the herbal supplements, unfortunately. And so that's where having a good practitioner or buying from a reputable supplement brand who can prove to you like what's in the capsule is actually in the capsule and they test it to make sure because otherwise you're going to say, Oh, I listened to them on that podcast that I tried I went to the store and bought that herb and, you know, that didn't do anything like, well, it was, you know, $10 for a thousand pills. Like, what'd you expect? Of course it's crap. <laughs> you know, <laughs> It's not very good quality. Thank so you. yes, there are a number out there. Um, you work for an incredible company, um, Dutch analytics, and this is obviously analytical, obviously, uh, analytical sorry. <laughs> um, this is something you guys nail, you know, week in, week out to thousands of people around the world that are trying to get a handle on their hormones. Is there a classic, um, you know, when you're looking at lab test results and you've obviously helped thousands of women yourself, is there a classic profile that you're looking at during this, this time period that, you know, because we encourage everyone in our series to get tested and to, mm -hmm. you know, test, don't guess. Um, what are some classic markers that you look for in these hormone tests? for someone going through perimenopause and maybe so, some things that they're not looking out for per se. That is a really good question. Unfortunately, because perimenopause can be a, a kind of a crazy roller coaster, it means your hormones can be a roller coaster as well. So for example, I may have really high cortisol because I'm really stressed out and um, maybe I still cycle. So I still have some estrogen. I still have some progesterone, but everything's kind of all over the map. And then maybe somebody else hasn't had a period in four months and she has hot flashes and night sweats and she feels terrible and all her hormones are really, really low. And so it, it's very individual when it comes to perimenopause, which is great. And then that's what we hope medicine is working towards, which is addressing the individual. It's not great when it comes to lab testing because um, we cannot give a blanket statement of, oh, you're 46. This is how you test your hormones because you're perimenopausal or, oh, you're 52. This is how you do it. It's, it's sometimes is, is person by person where I'm like, tell me your symptoms. Tell me the last time you had a period. Tell me what's going on. So I can try to figure out the right time to test them because it's literally all over the board for a lot of women. So I wish I could tell you that there's, oh, it's this pattern every time. Um, in menopause, I could tell you that 
in a cycling woman, I could tell you that in a man, I could tell you that, but in perimenopause, um, we lose that ability across all testing, serum, blood testing, saliva testing, urine testing, my testing, it doesn't matter. It's just, um, a lot more challenging because of what, what's going on in her body. I guess that makes it all the more important to work with like a qualified medical practitioner through this yes. testing, right? And especially because women don't realize that how you felt maybe the last six months might be different than how you're going to feel the upcoming six months. So you may have, um, and I see this all the time in women where they'll say, um, I was, I was having a period every other month. I'm, I'm skipping. I have every other month now. And then moving forward, they're like, okay, now I'm getting it every two weeks. This is ridiculous. I know. Okay. And so it's a lot of touch points with patients. It's a lot of like, how, how are you now? <laughs> what's happening now? Like, tell me what's changed now. Um, because some women can feel that way, not all, but some women can. And so that's where it's frustrating where they think, Oh, I went to the doctor. I got some testing done. I have herbs. I have vitamins. Maybe I have hormones. I'm going to be great. And maybe they are for a while. And then it all shifts. It all changes because the ovaries are shifting and changing internally. And then they go back to their provider, like, all right, this isn't working and it's all different. <laughs> and so it does, and it, it requires some expertise and finesse by the provider as well to understand perimenopause and understand hormones. Thank you. So before the males listening right now, crack the beer and sit in front of the TV and just <laughs> batten down the hatches as their wives go crazy for a few years. Um, Excuse you. <laughs> I'm just saying this is the typical, I'm the ignorant male perspective, right? <laughs> Um, they're not out of the crosshairs of hormonal transition. Um, what do males experience and what are uh, like, you know, is, is there an equivalent male transition that they could be going through? Yes. Yes, absolutely. It's not generally as, um, up and down <laughs> as it is for women. It's usually kind of a slow, gradual decline, let's say, um, because with men, we're primarily looking at testosterone, um, other hormones play a role, cortisol, men have estrogen too, but it's, it's testosterone declining that tends to make men be less energetic and less motivated and less on their A game and, um, maybe more, more sexual dysfunction. And uh, maybe they're noticing their, their belly is getting a lot bigger and their chest is getting flabbier and they're losing their hair and, you know, and, 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 but because for, for men, it tends to be a lot more gradual and in society, it's generally accepted. Right. And so whereas with women, we know women are going to become menopausal, but the perimenopausal thing is still kind of, it's, it, the symptoms can be really, um, disruptive. And so women don't want to talk about it and they don't want to admit to it. And it becomes sort of taboo. Whereas men, it's kind of accepted like, oh, yeah, he's in his 50s. Like, that's what happens when you get in your 50s. I'm like, whoa, not necessarily. Not necessarily. You can easily, you know, work with somebody to get rid of that beer belly. Put that beer down before you watch TV, you know, that to improve the flab, to help to help the sexual dysfunction, to, you know, slow the hair loss. So there's a lot for men that we can do. But um, men are not out of the crosshairs, as you said. They definitely can have hormonal problems. And I think that actually surprises a lot of men. A lot of men will call the lab and say, can I test? Can men, do men have hormones? Like men do have hormones. You can <laughs> test. <laughs> oh, amazing. Um, I think this is too big a topic to really tackle in, as we wrap up this call. But if, if, if it's at all possible uh, to give us a, 
a quick answer. Um, what is your perspective on HRT, hormone replacement therapy? I am a uh, my perspective is easy. I'm a huge fan of HRT. Okay. Yeah, I am a huge fan of HRT. I for the right person, um, you know, I'm very careful of risk and I'm very careful of follow up. But um, wow, there's some really phenomenal studies out there about women and the benefit of HRT. Now, remember, HRT stands for hormone replacement therapy, and that can apply to lots of hormones. So uh, uh, like DHEA is a hormone. Melatonin is a hormone. You know, vitamin D is technically a hormone. But when we're talking about HRT, most women think estrogens. Um, It's estrogen. Talk about estrogen. And so I am a fan of all of the hormones, estrogen, progesterone, testosterone, DHEA. But when it comes to estrogen, um, because of its help with bone health and brain health and heart health and mood and skin and, you know, sexual function, if I think women should talk to their provider and, and really get educated because if they are a good fit for it, it could really save them a lot of heartache and a lot of um, really negative symptoms. And it could maybe prevent from much worse things in the future. For example, maybe it will help reduce your risk for osteoporosis. Maybe it will reduce your risk for dementia. Maybe it will reduce your risk for cardiovascular disease. And women need to know cardiovascular disease, heart disease is the number one killer of women. It's not breast cancer, it's heart disease. and as women, of course, we're more afraid of breast cancer. You know, God forbid we forbid we get breast cancer, of course, but the number one killer is heart disease, just like it is for men. And so if you're fit and, you know, you could go on HRT, um, I am a big fan of it. I think it can be really beneficial if done right. Great. So what would be some guidelines that you would recommend to our viewers? And I, uh, I, first of all, of course, see your practitioner, but what are, what are some like general guidelines that someone should be thinking about when they're thinking about HRT? So uh, obviously risk factors. So if you may, like, if you've already, if you've already had cancer, you know, not good for you, but, um, you know, I ask a lot about their diet and their lifestyle and I ask family history, even though, um, we know family history, Genetic family history is big, but just like my grandmother had breast cancer, it doesn't increase my risk for breast cancer. For me, being the granddaughter, we used to think that, but it turns out that's not the case anymore. Um, other things like smoking, you know, diabetes, other sort of health factors I'm looking at. Um, do they already have heart disease? Does she already have high blood pressure? Does she already have um, some heart markers that I'm concerned about that I may not use? estrogen, because that may make those things worse. It's, it's better used, um, earlier versus jumping in and doing it later. Um, so I'm going through a lot of this with women. Have they had imaging before of their, you know, they had a mammogram, have they in maybe even MRI or ultrasound or thermography, which is, um, not generally accepted by, you know, kind of the conventional model, but a lot of, um, maybe alternative models, will include a thermogram when they're in, you know, with mammogram or an alternative to mammogram. And so at least some imaging, I'm like, have you done imaging? Like, what does the tissue of your breast health look like? And, and what are we looking at here? Then I test because I want to know, um, I may even do genetic testing on them, uh, genomic testing, I mean, to see there are markers that we can easily test that are generally affordable to tell me if you are more likely to go down an estrogen pathway that could increase your risk for cancer. There are markers I can look at to see if your 
liver is more um, able to clear your estrogen than somebody else. Um, and then I can do example like my test, the Dutch test. I can look to see where does your estrogen go right now? Are you going down a pathway that might increase your risk for cancer or are you going down a better pathway? And so I want to know that ahead of time before I just give somebody estrogen. I want to mitigate as much risk as possible. Other hormones are a little different, testosterone, DHEA, progesterone. I still ask a lot of these questions, but I'm less, of course, concerned about breast cancer. If I'm, you know, I've got somebody on testosterone or DHEA or progesterone even, I'm not, it's not my big concern. That's not top of mind, but there's still wonderful hormones that can really help a woman. Okay, great. So what about uh, synthetic versus bioidentical or creams versus pills? What are your thoughts on that? <laughs> so I am, I don't use synthetic. So synthetic um, it basically are the, the estrogen. They, it, they call it, um, it comes from pregnant mare urine is where it comes from. Mare meaning horses, right? It comes from pregnant, pregnant horses. That's where they get that estrogen. And um, then the synthetic progesterone is known as a progestin. And it doesn't look like our own progesterone. So it does, they do have their, uh, the progestin especially has a lot more associated risk. And I don't use that at all. I use bioidentical um, hormones in my practice. Bioidentical meaning um, like women have, the estrogen that we're talking about is called E2 or estradiol. So the HRT I use is also called estradiol. It's, it's um, still lab created, but it looks like what's in the body. And so uh, that's what I tend to use. Now, as far as creams or pills or pellets or injections or, you know, there's all sorts of routes that you can put your hormones. Um, so the, the answer is it kind of depends on what blend of hormones you're doing. So, for example, if you're doing any kind of estrogen, estradiol, E2, estradiol, which is the most potent estrogen, you have to do a progesterone to counterbalance it if you still have your uterus because we want to protect against the risk for uterine cancer. So we want oral progesterone, so the pill, or we want vaginal progesterone. Um, those are the two sort of proven to help protect the uterus against cancer. If you're doing progesterone though, just progesterone, you can do it as a pill, as a cream, as a, is it, is it's vaginal. There's, you have a lot of options and it depends, then it depends on the woman and, and what I'm going for. So for example, oral progesterone, I find, um, and research shows it helps improve sleep and anxiety better than a cream that you might rub on your arm or, you know, somewhere else in your body. Uh, and then when it comes to the other hormones, such as like testosterone, which comes in a variety of ways, DHEA, it's very similar. So I'm, I'm just, we're, um, um, I know the different routes of administration can sometimes render me different results with a patient. So anything you swallow might be different than the cream that you put on and location counts. So if, you know, dryness is a big issue for her, then I'm going to apply it down there because she's dry as opposed to having her swallow a pill. And so this is why it takes a much bigger conversation with a practitioner who really understands HRT to understand what are your symptoms, what are your biggest risks, and what do we think should be the best route to go. Mm, perfect. Thank you for those guidelines. Yeah. And for our perimenopausal women, is there room for HRT for them or is that too soon? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. They can do HRT for sure. And a lot do. A lot of women will usually start with progesterone. Um, maybe as they're, um, 
Uh, maybe they'll add in testosterone, you know, maybe they'll add in DHEA just to help with stress and energy. Some women absolutely can do estrogen. Maybe they've, they skipped, you know, their periods are getting further, further apart. They have all the symptoms of low estrogen. They're testing low estrogen. Like, you know what, we're just going to go ahead and put you on estrogen because you're, you're trending in that direction pretty quickly. So let's go ahead and do it. And I want women to realize that with HRT, you don't have to do all of them at once. You can start with one or two, you know, and build up, or maybe you just do one and that's the only one that you need. It's, it's, it's enough and you feel great. A lot of women generally start with progesterone, um, younger. And so, um, and for some that's great. That's all they need. It's all they want. They feel like it works pretty wonderfully and others just for a variety of reasons need, you know, a lot of hormones and that's cool too. It's just, everybody's different. Great. Thank you so much. Yes. This has certainly been so enlightening and um, particularly from a male perspective, as I said, the <laughs> hormones for dummies, guys like myself, um, how, like, you know, how, what's the best way of connecting with you? Like we love every time you've spoken on a series, you're so well thought out, such a gifted communicator and um, yeah, where's the best place to follow you, where to, to connect with you further? Definitely on Instagram. Um, that's where I hang out the most. I'm at dr.carryjones and then everything i do on dutchtest.com on the website is free so all our webinars podcasts everything all our blog articles about hormones and uh people will ask oh do i have to be a practitioner to watch them no absolutely not you can listen to all of our podcasts you can read all our blog posts and definitely educate yourself that's the biggest thing i want women to take away is uh hormones sound hard and, but I want you to understand it at a simple level. Cause I want you to be empowered. I, you know, it's your body. It's what you're going through. So I want you to have all the knowledge so that you can be really empowered and, you know, then make great choices moving forward. Awesome. For anyone watching, I follow Dr. Kerry on Instagram and it, it is a great account. She, you've done really well <laughs> to Kerry. Um, it's full of uh, great tidbits of information, just really on point, really scientifically researched and um, really sound advice. So I definitely recommend you follow her there. And um, if you enjoyed this call, let her know on her Instagram as well. Well, thank you so much for having me. Like I said, this is definitely a really uh, important topic to me. And um, yes, in the next, you know, 10 or 15 years when you get there, Sarah, I'll, I'll help you out. I'll help you, thank you. Out. I'll I help appreciate you. that. <laughs> And as I'm getting low T, you'll increase that testosterone and keep me on my Yeah, I'll help, you, I'll help you with that too. Yeah, so awesome. he doesn't get, he, get a beer gut. I'd appreciate yeah, that. Yeah, we don't Thank want you. that or, or flatty chest. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you.